When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who has invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then, in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. The point of a parable is to teach us something about living in God's kingdom. Usually it isn't too difficult to find God in the parable. Sometimes it's written right there for us to see. In Mark chapter 4, for example, Jesus starts one speech with the phrase, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? Then he's nice enough to answer the question for us. He says, it's like a mustard seed that's tiny. And despite being tiny, it grows into something big that provides shade. In Matthew 7, we even have a parable we, ha- we like so much we've got a song for it. A wise man built his house upon the rock. We-, we do the whole hand motions and everything. And Jesus is nice enough again to lay out the point at the very beginning of that. Anyone who hears these words from Jesus' sermon on the mountainside and does them will survive the storm. And those who don't do them will be washed away. Living in God's kingdom means listening to the words of Jesus. This is pretty obviously theological material here. Luke. Luke has several parables in a row about lost things that are found. A silver coin, a sheep, and a son. When each of the lost things is found, the finder rejoices and celebrates with his or her friends because finding lost things is the work of the king and worth celebrating. These are all very down-to-earth, everyday sorts of stories telling us what the kingdom of God is like. But God and the kingdom seem to be absent from our parable today. It doesn't say anything about how this is related to kingdom living. Now, I think we could do a few things with this lack of God and this tiny speech of Jesus's. First, we could say, maybe Luke made a mistake— He wrote down that a parable was coming and then wrote something else. It's kind of like walking into the bedroom to grab your shoes, but you forget why you got there, so you take a nap instead. Never been guilty of that. Second, maybe we could say we simply don't have all the information about what the word parable means. Uh, This could be one of those rare times when the normal usage of the word doesn't fit. Um, I. Howard Marshall, a theologian and author, writes that Occasionally, the word parabole can mean a rule. Or this could be one of those times when, over the years, the meaning of a word has changed. Historically, in English, the word nice used to mean stupid. So next time you uh, tell someone they're nice, (laughs) think about that. Or sometimes when we read a word, instead of hearing it, it can mean two two very different things based on the context. For example, this word, S-E-W-E-R, It can mean the place our uh, waist goes after flushing, or it can mean someone who has the ability to stitch cloth together. Now, out loud, there's a difference between sewer and sewer, but on paper, you have to figure that out sometimes. 
Third, we could just let this boil down to being worldly wisdom. Not worldly like the Bible talks about worldly, like being a bad thing, um, but worldly like it's just advice on how to be in the world. A lot like most of the Proverbs. A lot of the Proverbs say nothing about God. It's just like, hey, don't be dumb and do this thing right. Jesus could just be giving advice about how to behave at weddings, which is kind of funny because in John's gospel, he doesn't behave at a wedding. He waits till everyone gets plastered and then brings out the good wine. No one does this, except Jesus. This could just be advice, though. Don't be more important than you think you are so you won't be humiliated. Because who wants to be humiliated, especially in public? Now, we need to keep in mind that wedding feasts are a big deal, and there are lots of people present. This isn't like uh, what we tend to do here, where we're here for a couple hours, there's a reception, and we're gone, and then we throw rice at them or bubbles or whatever. This, these things could last days. And if on the first day you get shamed and moved down a slot, you've got a few more days to stick with this kind of shame that everyone sees. So to save yourself the trouble, you go to the bottom of the table. That way, if you belong there, no harm, no foul. If you don't belong there, then everyone will see that you get to move up. But if this is just worldly advice, it can quickly become something of a joke. The late Fred Craddock, a well-known preaching professor, once wrote, Taking the low seat because one is humble is one thing. Taking the low seat as a way to move up is another. The entire message becomes a cartoon if there's a mad, competitive rush for the lowest place with ears cocked toward the host waiting for the call to ascend. These are a few possibilities to consider because God really does seem to be absent from this so-called parable. Even so, Luke still calls this thing a parable, so I suppose this must have something to do with kingdom living. I don't think this is a weird way to use the word parable, nor do I think Luke necessarily made a mistake here, because this is not the first time there's been a parable that doesn't mention God or the kingdom. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about a sower, S-O-W-E-R, who's throwing out seeds And three of the four places they land on, they die. But whenever it takes root in a good, rich place, the growth is immense. After this parable, Jesus' own followers have to ask, Hey, Jesus, what? What were you talking about? They spend all their time with him and still have no idea what the point is. And this time he's nice enough to say, okay, here's the point. Still, there are other stories in our lives outside the Bible that don't mention God or the kingdom, and yet God and the kingdom are present in them. When Julie and I first moved to San Angelo officially in 2012, a few months after we arrived, I got the call that my dad had had some sort of stroke. I didn't know what to do. I freaked out. I had to consider the possibility that I was about to lose my dad, and it wasn't fair. He's not supposed to die of a stroke in his 50s, he's supposed to get old and crotchety. And I didn't handle it very well. But I distinctly remember being surrounded by the people who love me here at Johnson Street. I remember being hugged and held by the house parents from my 2010 youth ministry internship here, Michael and Elizabeth O'Brien. I remember Kevin and Shelley Huddleston being there for me when things got dark And frankly, I don't have time to list all the people who were here for me, but there were a lot of you. And no one had to speak the name of Jesus 
to announce his presence. The kingdom of God was at work in that story, even when we never named it. And failure to mention God in this advice about wedding banquets does not mean he isn't there. Luke calls this a parable, so it must have something to do with God and his kingdom. This parable is a call to true humility. Craddock was right. If we only pretend to be humble while hoping that the people at the top notice, then it all becomes a mad dash for the bottom. But true humility is a mark of living in the kingdom. God has set the banquet table, and we are invited. But our intentions matter quite as much as our actions. Therefore, this call to true humility shows us that humility is a standard mark of being the people of God. This is not the first time anyone has discussed humility and pride in Scripture. We got it a bit in our reading that Paul read and got the verse right this time. And uh, we deeply appreciate that. (laughs) I appreciate his sense of humor last week in saying, Oh, here we go. And he was humble enough to say, Oops. So I appreciate that, Paul. In our reading of James, we got that a bit. Um, Occasionally, God is portrayed as being specifically on the side of the humble. This is attested in the Psalms, Prophets, and Proverbs. For you deliver a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. God leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility goes before honor. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the neediest people shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. God is also the one who humbles his people in order to restore them to their rightful place. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted with, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other places, humility is considered a part of of the act of repentance. Have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring disaster on his house. Then the officers of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is in the right. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Specifically for Luke, the author of our text today, God exalts the humble. At the very beginning of the gospel, he uses Mary, the mother of Jesus, to set out this framework for humility. At this point, she is singing a song of praise to God that we traditionally call the Magnificat. And her understanding of God speaks to our text today. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. I think Luke expects us to understand 
that sitting at the low end of the table is not about going to a friend's wedding, but that true humility is the standard attitude of the people of God. And Luke's understanding of humility here makes a difference to our reading and application of Acts 2.42. The time that we've been spending in this dense, rich little verse is affected by how Luke expects the people of God to behave. This is a necessary quality of those who would model their lives after this little verse. And they were persevering in the teaching of the apostles and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. These four things are good things to be doing. We should focus in on the teachings of those who knew Jesus firsthand. We should be persevering in fellowship with one another. We should keep breaking bread and praying. However, much like the dash for the bottom seat at the table, if these things are done without humility, they become a joke. Perseverance in the apostles' teaching without humility results in bickering over who's right, especially because the apostles' teachings aren't always going to make sense, and they don't match up as perfectly as we would like them to. As it turns out, there are different ways to read the Bible. Who could have guessed? When have you ever seen or participated in a debate over who's right about the Bible? Good thing we don't do that here at Johnson Street. Perseverance in fellowship is great until we remove humility. At that point, I'm just putting up with the people who are somehow beneath me. We have more than a few powerful, influential, and very well-educated people in this congregation. But no one, no matter their position, is above thinking someone is below me. Without humility, fellowship with someone you think is beneath you isn't compassion, it's pity. And pity is degrading. It doesn't do anyone any good to be pitied because they're lower than me on the totem pole. Perseverance in breaking of bread is important, but to do so without humility means we risk alienating the people who need the bread most. This was a problem addressed in part of 1 Corinthians. The rich people showed up and devoured the meal, leaving nothing for the servants, slaves, and the poor to eat when they came to participate in worship. And how many times have we taken it upon ourselves to decide who can and can't share bread with us? Or who can hand that bread out to those who need it? Our bulletin may invite all Christians to partake of the Lord's Supper. But what about our meals away from here? When have we ever decided someone wasn't good enough to sit at our table? Perseverance in prayers matters. Since prayer is such a vital part of the life of the believer, prayer is the life of the believer. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that we should not heap up empty phrases like the pagans do. We should not pray like the hypocrites who love to be seen praying. Now, he doesn't say prayer can't be beautiful, especially since Jesus' prayer in the sermon could be considered a form of Greek poetry. They ask him, how should we pray? And he says, here's poetry. Prayer is beautiful, but to speak forever and ever in prayer specifically to be seen by others is simply unacceptable. It's no different than sitting at the low end of the table hoping the banquet master will see what you've done. But when have any of us ever prayed to be seen? The way Luke expects us to be humble makes a difference to how we read and enact 
Acts 2.42. So when we read Acts 2.42, Luke offers us the opportunity to read it through the lens of humility. In our Bible classes on Sundays, we're studying this book called The Good and Beautiful Life. Community. Good and Beautiful Community. This book has chapters on being the generous community, the serving community. Today we discuss being the hopeful community, but there's no chapter on being the humble community. James Bryan Smith, the author of this book, does not address humility directly as being part of a beautiful community because he addressed it in the book before this. Good and Beautiful Community is the final book in this trilogy about spiritual formation. And he discusses humility and pride in his second book, the one I mentioned first on accident, The Good and Beautiful Life. He tells a story about going to speak at the chapel of an illustrious Christian university where he would be preaching three days in a row. He felt this inner tension after the first day of wanting to point people to God in his speaking and also wanting to be liked by these college students because of what he said. On his third day, he spoke with such deep conviction that he received a standing ovation from the crowd of students which one of the faculty members leaned over and said, soak this in. They don't do this for anyone. And as he left for home, this struggle within continued. He wrote, I have heard that a person's heart is truly in the kingdom of God when, after speaking, his or her desire is not for people to say, what a great preacher, but rather, what a great God he or she knows. Smith doesn't talk about being a humble community because he assumes you've already read book two and you've already started the process of becoming a humble person so that you can do that with others. And there are ways that the elements of Acts 2.42 are already at work here in Johnson Street. We have numerous opportunities for Bible studies to examine the apostles' teaching. We fellowship together, and I love the buzz of chatter that happens before the official call to worship. We do a non-meal version of the breaking of bread every week, and there are numerous full meals shared among the members of this congregation. And prayer, prayer happens all over the place. We've got prayers for the congregation, prayers for the new minister, prayers for the mission teams worldwide, prayers for those in hospitals, and for those attending camps and retreats. How certain are we, really? That we do everything, absolutely everything, in humility. Will we take time to think through what it means to be an Acts 242 community that lives out those elements in true humility? Therefore, it is our responsibility not just to model the particular elements of the Christian community, but to model them humbly. We can debate all we want about what it looks like to be the first century church, however vague a claim that is. But the model does not bring us closer to Christ. The model does not transform. It's not the idea of community we seek, but true community, the real thing. It is not the pretense of humility that we use to approach the throne of God, but true humility brings us together. Persevere in the teaching of the apostles and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers, but do so humbly. Seek the seat at the bottom of the banquet table where we break bread and fellowship and pray while earnestly examining your heart for why you seek that seat. 
Because honestly, I can't tell you what your motivations are. That's not something I can help you with. Because the places of honor are reserved for those whose hearts truly belong to God, even though they never wanted those seats in the first place. So do not seek out honor, but do what God has required of you, to love mercy, to live justly, and to walk humbly with God.